Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Tom Hartman is amazing, and we're amazingly fortunate to have him back again with us for Spirit in Action. He doesn't, to my knowledge, compete in the Olympics, nor is he a movie actor, but when it comes to words, ideas, and progressive analysis, he's top of the charts, being the number one progressive talk show host in the USA. And when he puts his words to print, he's even more compelling. He's written more than 30 books, most of them part of his Hidden History series. He has just released his latest book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy. And in it, he illuminates the past and present of Big Brotherhood oppression on the part of both government and by corporations. I can never have too much time talking with Tom, so you can expect that you should check our website, northernspiritradio.org, for excerpts that can't fit in this 55-minute broadcast. Also serve you notice up front that there will be a lot of background noise going on around Tom, as there's a heap of construction, hammering, sawing, drilling, and thumping around Tom's place. Still, let's join Tom Hartman via Zoom from California, and let's use the construction sounds as mood music for the Big Brother threat to our democracy. Tom, welcome back. Fifth time now on Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here with you. And you've already done your three hours on the radio today? Yeah. Now I've got to spend another three or four hours writing my op-ed for tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness. How do you do it? How do you do it? Energy bars? What is it? Exercise? It's been easier during the pandemic because, you know, I don't have a life. You know, we've just been locked down for two years. And so working a 11, 12 hour day has been fairly easy, but I've always worked at least a 10 or 11 hour day. It's just my whole entire life. It's amazing you fit it all in, but I'm grateful that you do. As I said, folks, this is the number one progressive voice out there on talk show radio. So are your ratings holding? There's no one coming up after you? I mean, maybe Spirit in Action is just right behind you. I wish that there were a lot more shows that we're doing as well. We need a much more robust progressive media eco infrastructure. You know, I'm really glad that you're doing the show that you're doing. And there are a few dozen people out there who are doing really good shows that show up as podcasts or on the internet or occasionally on commercial or community radio. But frankly, I wish there were more. Is there anything you can do to be a mentor for the next ones? You know, I've, I've written a couple of articles about how to do good talk radio or how to do podcasts, basically the voice modulation and talking to your audience as if it was one person rather than talking to a room full of people and you know, just the basic stuff that I'm guessing you already know. There is such a lack of a farm team. We really, really need it. In every city in America of any consequence, in probably every city over, you know, 100,000 people, there's a right-wing talk show station with two or three local guys doing, or gals doing right-wing talk. And uh, that's just not true on the left. So I would like to see that change, but all I can do is what I can do. I'm really happy to have you here today talk about the hidden history of Big Brother in America. Let's start off. You don't specifically say this very clearly at all in the book, although you do allude to one situation where possibly Big Brother in data was ruining your life. It seems to me that as a voice for the left, you would be susceptible to Big Brother wanting to shut you down. Talk about the one case where you think it might have happened and other cases where it evidently hasn't happened. You know, I don't know. I'm assuming that it was 
uh, you know, Facebook is a huge organization and they hire people from the whole spectrum of humanity. And it was probably somebody in the organization who just personally didn't like my politics and thought that they would punish me this way. Or it was just some horrible accident. Facebook has never told me. They just, you know, one day I have two accounts with them. I have my personal account where I follow my family and friends, mostly back in Michigan, where I grew up, you know, cousins and nephews and stuff. And I don't interact that much on that account. I just kind of keep track of people. And then I've got the account for the show. The account for the show, I think, is making Facebook money because, you know, it's, we're, we're quite active on Facebook. But one day, my personal account, I got this uh, flag that said, uh, we need to verify your identity. Please upload your driver's license. And so I did. And I went through that seven times, as I recall, uh, seven different times over the course of a couple of weeks where I couldn't log in. And it gave me the same message. And so I uploaded my driver's license each time. And then finally, I got a message that said, your account no longer exists. No reason or words to that effect. I, I, you know, it's been a while and I don't recall exactly how it played out. If it's in the book, I, I wrote the book about a year ago. You know, it's, it takes about a year to write a book. And if the details are in there, they're good. So I started yelling about it on the air and I wrote a couple of op-eds about it. Not like poor me, but, you know, is this what happens to people who are progressives in this space? And then one day it just reappeared. I logged on and tried to log on every week for about a month or so. One day I logged on and there it was. And it was right after I'd published an article that mentioned that in Alternet. You know, I know that one of the guys who was a whistleblower for Facebook lost his account. And he, you know, I quote him in the book, he calls it a dick move. But like I said, I can't attribute any particular motive or anything to them because I don't know. They never told me. And I'm frankly not freaked out enough about it or whatever and don't have a staff who can go do investigations to, or sue them or something. Yeah, why bother? That's the problem. We have social media that, you know, more Americans, and it's not just Facebook, by the way, but specifically with Facebook, more Americans get their news from Facebook than any other source. I mean, NBC News claims that, but it's not true. Facebook actually provides the news to more people in America than any other source. And around the world, that's very often the case. That's a mind boggling amount of power. And you would think that some responsibility would come with that, you know, and I realize that they're making efforts to clean up their act, but for a long time, they were just behaving in ways that, well, in one case that led to a genocide in Myanmar. Now Facebook is saying, please regulate us. And I think we should. Let's talk about what you mean by big brother. Uh, Of course, there's George Orwell's book, 1984. Big Brother is kind of the mind control figurehead for the entire community, country. What do you mean by Big Brother? I break it into two broad categories, government and corporate. Basically, it is what just came to mind was Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America in 1838. He referred to the danger of a vast tutelary power, you know, that overlooks and nudges all Americans in particular directions. I would say with regard to government, well, actually, in both cases, with regard to government and with regard to corporations, in my mind, the big brother that I'm concerned about are the entities that seek to exploit us or influence us or regulate us in ways that may be inconsistent with our best interests, and in some cases, even inconsistent with the best interests of the community for their own power or wealth. The two big classifications, governmental big brother and corporate big brother, are really important. I think there's a kind of this dynamic tension between them. One of the things that I've thought frequently is that conservatives, political conservatives in the United States, generally fear and oppose government big brother 
but they seem to want to give corporate big brother free reign over their lives. And I don't know, is that a perspective that resonates with you or is that making any sense? I think that has historically been an accurate analysis, although conservatives want big brother government to regulate whether women can get abortions. Now you've got three Republicans running for attorney general of Michigan, and all three of them are saying that the Griswold case in 1965 was wrongly decided. In other words, they want to go back to it being illegal to have birth control in your home. I mean, the Griswold case in 72, the Supreme Court legalized the possession of birth control for unmarried people. It was a crime in many states up until 1972. In 65, it was a crime in many states for married people to have. And I'm, and I'm not talking about hormone pills or anything like that. I'm talking about condoms. It was against the law. These were laws that were passed by largely Catholic zealots back in the day. So this case in 1965 said that a married couple may have condoms in their house without fear that the police will kick the door in and drag them off and arrest them. All three white Republican men who are running for attorney general on the Republican side in Michigan have now come out and said that that case was wrongly decided and that it should be up to an individual state whether to make birth control illegal. So in a lot of ways, you know, and also the so-called, you know, crackdown on crime, you know, Nixon's war on crime, that Haldeman later came out and said, you know, we knew what we were doing. We criminalized marijuana and heroin because they were used by the hippies in the black community so that we could break up their communities and, and imprison their leaders and attack them on television every night. You know, we didn't think that the drugs were all that dangerous. So I would argue that conservatives have historically claimed to be small government conservatives. But when it comes to accomplishing what they see as their goals, they are all in favor of big government. So I guess it's a question of who's big government, not how big government. Big brother has always been there as a concept on one level or another. Difference now is we have technology to make it unbelievably accurate and powerful. And to some degree, that was presaged in 1984. I think that the people who fear government think of 1984 but today we should think of Facebook and your cell phone and Echo in your house and so on. So how much do you think the danger has been magnified of Big Brother? Effective mind and action control of us. Well, the tool set the Big Brother has are more sophisticated and as such can be much more subtle. In the book, I start out talking about how in the South, they created a police state, a big brother police state. There's a long quote by Frederick Douglass in the book where he talks about how the moment that he realized that if he could learn to read, he could get out of this, you know, as the way to break the control of big, big brother. There's also a story in the book about the Puritans up in New Hampshire and Massachusetts and how they tortured women for speaking out against them. I wanted to thank you, by the way, for bringing in Quakers there. You know, I'm Quaker. And the Quakers are the good guys in that story, I guess That's you'd right. say. That's right. These Quaker women who were, I mean, they were stripped naked, tied to the back of a cart in the middle of winter when there was four feet, three feet of snow on the ground, and dragged behind this cart through a series of cities. And in each one of the cities, they were whipped until they were bleeding. And oh, what's the guy's name who wrote the poem about it? I include parts of the poem in there. Whittier. Yeah. John Greenleaf Whittier. Yeah. That was Big Brother too. you know, an attempt to control individuals in, in ways that you know, <laughs> certainly didn't work to their benefit. And I also talk about how, uh, you know, the founders were very concerned about this. The framers of the Constitution in the Fourth Amendment, they wrote privacy. Please forgive the noise, but they're doing construction on the outside, right next to our house here. I'm sorry. I can't do anything about it. But the framers of the Constitution, when they wrote the Fourth Amendment, you know, that you shall have uh, security in your privacy and in, in, in your papers, in your homes and papers. 
you know, they got it too. It's just that they never used the word privacy. And, and what was so amazing when I started doing the research on this was to discover that in 1776, the word privacy meant something completely different. It meant using the toilet, which is why outhouses were called privies. It wasn't until the 1960s in the United States that the Supreme Court recognized a right to privacy. Uh, you know, it was in the 1920s they first started debating it. So uh, we've come a long way, actually, in the last couple of decades, but uh, we've had a lot farther to go. I've heard from way back that the Supreme Court, it was the accusations of the Supreme Court made up the right to privacy because the word's not in the Constitution. And you've already explained why with privies and all of that kind of thing. But you also lay out that at least four of the amendments, maybe five of the amendments, uh, the Bill of Rights, which specifically address elements of that. You want to go through that list? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the obvious one is the Fourth Amendment lays that out. But actually, if you have the list right in front of you, why don't you toss them at me? Because I don't, it's been a while since I wrote the book and I don't recall the details. Well, the First Amendment, right of association, I think is what we connect with that, right? In the Third Amendment, that's the no quartering of troops. You don't have to let the foreign invader into your house or something yeah, like that. Right? Yeah. Or your own government, you don't have to. Fourth, the phrase secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects seems pretty broad ranging. And it's kind of amazing that that was struck down, as you point out, in the 1920s, I think it was. They say, no, there's no right to privacy. <laughs> and of course, the Fifth Amendment, self-incrimination. Those are all elements of privacy. Yes, I agree. And in some ways, Roe v. Wade even touched on those things. So there's a constitutional basis for it, even though some people want to fight against it. I was wondering what you thought of the situation with the Texas law about abortion. Is it Texas or is it Louisiana? The one that's before the Supreme Court right now is Louisiana, but the Texas law is the one that's got everybody hysterical. I thought real appropriately that, wow, what that law encourages is essentially citizens spying on others. You talk about East Germany and the whole situation there, how they kept control was because they mobilized all the people to be spying on one another. I'm just thinking that in Texas, you're aiming for the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah, because there's a chapter in the book about my experience living in Germany. In fact, I visited East Germany when it was East Germany. And looking back on it, the guy, the taxi driver, in quotes, who picked us up, you know, was clearly an agent of the state. I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Lives of Others. Have you seen that, Mark? No, I haven't seen that. It is so worth going out of your way to find. It's, it's in German. It's subtitled, which makes, you know, some people, it makes it hard for some people to watch. But, you know, it's about a family in East Germany in the 60s. It's just a heartrending. It's an extraordinary story. It's just one of the best movies I've ever seen, frankly. You know, it's about this, literally, they had a third of the population spying on the other two thirds of the population, you know, full time. It was like the major business in East Germany. And, you know, this is what autocrats have to do. This is what tyrannical governments have to do. You already mentioned Myanmar, the ethnic cleansing that was fueled there essentially by Facebook against the Rohingya. How did they do that? I think if we look at what happened there, we can understand how it can happen here. As much as some people want to think America's, you know, exceptionalism and all this kind of thing could never happen here. And yet they don't learn from what we've seen done very effectively elsewhere. The way it worked was the uh, Myanmar military started producing fake news stories and fake videos and, and whatnot about Rohingya Muslims attacking Buddhist Myanmarians, I don't, you know, it used to be called Burma. You'd call them Burmese. 
they just kept pushing these stories out to the point that people who lived in areas close to where the Rohingya were just started going on crusades. I mean, this was like the uh, very similar to what happened in Africa years ago, you know, the Hutus and the Tutsis, one attacked the other. And it was guys on talk radio who were whipping that one up, you know, get your machete and go. Kill the cockroaches. Yeah, that was, in fact, that was literally one of the phrases that they used. Yeah. So I think we can learn whether it's from Myanmar or whether it's from Rwanda, we can learn about how we prevent Big Brother from taking over. Well, and they were both media. I mean, the Rwandan one was driven by radio. The, the Myanmar one was driven by Facebook. But there are two different tools that do the same thing. They, they're media that are used to communicate. And in this case, we're used to communicate lies that provoked murder, mass murder. Right. And folks, we're talking for Spirit in Action today. We're talking to Tom Hartman, number one progressive talk show host in the U.S. And does that mean that you're more than Amy Goodman, too? Or maybe she's not a talk show? She's not a talk show. Amy Goodman is our Walter Cronkite. We're talking to him, and specifically, he puts out two books a year or something like that. He works his fingers to the bone typing up a new book and with wonderful historical perspectives. The one that's just coming out very shortly is The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threatens Us and Our Democracy. And right in line with that, Tom, The big example that you give right in the intro and you revisit it several times throughout the book is the Cambridge Analytica fulcrum that ended up deciding the 2016 election. Explain what that was. Well, Cambridge Analytica had figured out how to mine Facebook for user data so that they could then insert both advertisements and messages that didn't seem to be advertisements and direct them toward people that they thought would be most vulnerable to the message that Donald Trump should become president. They did literally thousands of test ads, you know, on small numbers of people to see what works and fine tune them and make them exactly. And then a Facebook, of course, was also gathering that information out just in the last couple of months, Facebook has dialed that back a lot. And also Apple, and I'm not sure if Microsoft has, but I think Google have also limited the amount of data that they can harvest from people who use you know, the app on their, on their phones and things and their devices. That caused a big hit to Facebook's stock price. But basically, they, you know, what Facebook and other companies that offer a free service, you know, Facebook, Google, Twitter, et cetera, have to sell is you. It's an old cliche that everybody has memorized by now. You know, if you don't pay for a product, you are the product. But I don't think people realize that that was used, in fact, to turn an election. Had Cambridge Analytica, I mean, Cambridge Analytica like, openly came out and took credit for Trump's victory and for Brexit, by the way. And uh, I think they're almost certainly right. It's just a, a cautionary tale about how easily we are manipulated by people who have an intimate knowledge of us and our fears and our hopes and our desires and our concerns and exploit that knowledge for their own gain which goes way beyond simple marketing. You know, if if I'm selling cars, I want to sell them to people who are old enough to drive a car. And, you know, if I can get a subgroup of that, probably have, you know, a full-time job and can therefore afford a car. So there's a certain amount of filtering that you do in any advertising or marketing campaign. But when you can get down to minutia, like people who have particular political opinions or people who have had conflicts in their families or people who are only children or oldest children or people who have had acrimonious divorces versus happy divorces. This level of granularity makes us extraordinarily vulnerable to messages, particularly messages that use things like masculinity and relationships to grab hold of us 
and then you know wrap a message for delivery, a political or marketing message for delivery within that. And do you include the data that is kept on us commonly? This, this is just one layer of it, essentially. Three and a half pages of extremely tiny type of all of the attributes that they trace about everyone. That was the shortest one I could find. I mean, as I know in the, in the book, that was, I think, around 3,000 data points, as I recall. Most of these companies that are selling your data to like retail stores, you go into a retail store and they've got facial recognition cameras and they immediately recognize you and identify you and then look you up. And by the time you're five steps into the store, they know if they want to sell you something. They know if they'll take a return from you. They know if they're going to accept your credit card or not. They know, if, you know, I mean, it's just mind boggling. And these companies that are selling this data, the credit companies and the, in particular, the marketing companies for potential landlords or landlords who are you know, looking at potential renters or retail stores, most of them brag that they have a minimum of 15,000 data points, five times as many as are in those three pages in the book. So it's breathtaking. It's crazy. It's frightening. And anyone who thinks that Big Brother isn't there is badly deluded. It's quite serious. So about the Cambridge Analytica stuff, you provide an example how the vote went in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm living in Wisconsin, and Wisconsin ended up going for Trump in 2016, did not go for him in 2020. You pointed out that one of the differences was enough of these votes right in the inner city of Milwaukee area, which had voted very heavily for Obama at the lead, that, you know, 50,000 fewer vote for that, and they don't even bother to vote, and therefore... And if I'm remembering correctly, the campaign against Milwaukee, or against citizens of Milwaukee, which is, has a large Black population, by the way, the goal of that campaign was to not get people to vote for Donald Trump, but to get people not to bother voting for Hillary Clinton. And they did it by taking her super predator comment and a few other things, you know, with that and some of the, the Clinton crime stuff and just amplifying it and just pushing it into their faces. Not as if it was like, oh, my God, don't vote for Hillary. She's terrible. Vote for Trump. But as, hey, did you know this about Hillary Clinton? We didn't know this person, you know, that kind of thing. The explicit goal was to discourage people from voting. It was a form of voter suppression and it worked. In line with that statement, it's the demise of democracy, the demise of our way of life is going to be a result, not necessarily of people intentionally doing bad, but that good men do nothing. But I also, when you compared the number of votes that went for Obama versus for Hillary in 2016, it struck me that maybe that was just a difference because, you know, I, I'm black and I don't see a black face at the head of the party. So therefore, why should I bother go vote? I don't know if that's true. I mean, that was a possibility that it seemed to me. Certainly there was increased black turnout because Obama was on the ticket. I mean, he not acknowledge reality to, to not think that that's true. But that said, that was still a group of people who were involved in elections, who were able to vote, who were willing to vote, who were registered to vote and could have turned out to vote and knew that even as a black person, even though there were white candidates on the ticket, that their interests were very much at stake. Folks, we've got Tom Hartman here, the Tom Hartman, the Tom Hartman, the Tom Hartman show. We've got links on org, but you can search him and his three-hour daily 
talk show makes him the number one talk radio person in the United States, and we're grateful for that. He also writes a couple books a year, and he's been writing the Hidden History series for a long time. The book we're talking about today, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy. He's here today for Spirit in Action, and our website is northernspiritradio.org. Links to our guests, so when you want to get a hold of Tom, you can track him down there. Track down his books. They're easy reads, and they're extremely fertile reads. Both the analysis and the history and the insights that you'll get from reading the books will make you richer and make you better able to make your own decisions. I personally, when I have you on, Tom, I try and make sure I don't just accept what you say. I try and look at the other layers and say, is there another answer to this? The thing that reassures me about you is you're always open to entertaining and looking at those things. You're actually not doctrinaire, and that makes it rich. He's just one of many wonderful people who are doing world healing work, who I have on Spirit in Action. Track all of them via our website. Post comments on our site when you listen to a program. You support us by clicking on support and then donate. We need your support to carry this on. And that's one of the things, by the way, Tom, that I would say you evidently are able to make a decent living. I mean, you've built up corporations, sold them. You've done massive amounts of work and development. You know how to run a business. I think you've made this self-supporting. There is something on the liberal end of the spectrum that says, no, you shouldn't get paid for being liberal, whereas conservatives seem to have no compunction whatsoever about richly rewarding a Rush Limbaugh or whatever. I bet you don't make as much as Rush Limbaugh ever made. Nothing close. Uh, you know, I make a, a reasonable salary, but it's a reasonable salary that you would probably find across large parts of America. You know, during the first five, six years of the show, I made nothing. Louise and I sold a business in 96 or 97 and moved to Vermont and retired. And this show was just a proof of concept. When I wrote the original proposal that became Air America Radio, I wanted to demonstrate that there was a market for progressive talk radio and it could be done. And I had a background in radio. I when I was 16, I was a DJ. I, I did news for seven years, radio news for seven years. I, did, I was a DJ for three years. So I started the show in Vermont in 2003 on a lark. You know, I was retired. I wasn't trying to make a living. We had a little nest egg from having sold that business in Atlanta, an advertising agency. And I was writing books. I, was, I had just written The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, and I was working on The Prophet's Way. We got picked up. We got one station that picked us up, and then we got picked up by a network, the IE America Radio Network out of Detroit, and then that got us on Sirius Satellite Radio. And But it still took a little short of a decade before we actually started making money. And I had to support the whole thing out of my retirement savings. So, you know, it's not an easy thing. It takes a certain tenacity, <laughs> willingness to bang your head against the wall and lose money for years. But I was having so much fun, and I felt like I was having... I was making a difference. And I think the show has made a difference over the years. We had Bernie Sanders on when very few people knew who he was, you know, starting out for 11 years, every Friday he was on. It's called Brunch with Bernie. For a whole hour, he would take calls from listeners. I can't claim any credit for Bernie being who he is today, but, but I think we helped him. I think we helped him get into the Senate and helped raise his profile. There have been a number of issues over the years that I think that we've had an impact on. And it's also helped me amplify my books. You know, I wrote Unequal Protection back in 2002, the year before we started the radio show. And that's the book where I point out, and nobody had done it to the best of my knowledge before, 
that number one, the American Revolution was fought against a transnational corporation and the Boston Tea Party was not the people of Boston objecting to too much taxes. They were objecting to a corporate tax cut that was given to the East India Company so that they could more effectively compete with the small tea houses. And it just pissed them off, number one. And number two, that the Supreme Court never actually said corporations are people in 1886. The whole thing was a lie. Neither of those points, I don't think, had ever been made clearly in one book. So I wrote the book, you know, which got kind of an academic following because there was a bunch of lawyers who were like, really? And historians. But by being able to talk about it on the radio and, and talk about those ideas, in fact, I'm not sure I can even say that I increased radically the sales of my book, but I got the ideas out there. And now it's kind of conventional wisdom. You know, when some conservative says, oh, the Boston Tea Party, you know, taxed enough already. We, we've, we rebelled against being taxed. You know, somebody will come along and say, no, that's not the story. And, you know, I think most Americans didn't even know that. Or, you know, yeah, the Supreme Court in 1886 said corporations are people. And now you've got people who will say, no, no, that's not what they said. It's never said it until 2010 with Citizens United. What facet of your background do you think got you to go into talk radio? I mean, was it was it your master's in herbal medicine, your PhD in homeopathy? <laughs> was it was it all of the history books you collected? And that I mean, I, since you, after you have a few thousand history books, I think you are compelled to share that with the world. <laughs> what do you think got you to go in this direction? My dad dropped out of college in his second year because my mom got pregnant with me and went on to work in a tool and die shop. But he wanted to be a professor of history. And he had close to 20,000 books in his basement when he died. In fact, I, I made my bedroom in there. I, my bedroom was made up of walls of books when I was a little kid. So, you know, history has always fascinated me. And my dad used to teach me history and read me stories about history when I was a little, little kid, you know, like five, six, seven years old. He'd read me history or tell me history stories. When I went into radio for a while, I was producing a talk show on WITL. It was a one-hour show in the afternoon, the Chuck Drake show. Chuck Mefford was one of the owners of the station. It was his show. And so I got an insight into how that worked. And that was, that was all in the late 60s, early 70s. So then in the early 2000s, in 2003, as Bush was about to take us to war and all these horrors were going on, I had been writing a lot. I started writing for Common Dreams in particular, probably around 2000 or 2001. And... For the decade prior to that, the decade that we lived in Atlanta throughout the 80s, from 83 to 96 when we moved to Vermont or 97, I had to drive to work every day. And in Atlanta, it's quite a, it can be quite a commute. And it wasn't our case. And so it was like a half hour, 35, 40 minute drive. I used to listen to talk radio in my car. I used to listen to Limbaugh. I'd listen to Neil Bortz. He was the local guy in Atlanta. I'd listen to Michael Savage. I'd listen to whoever, you know, I just, I was fascinated by the structure of it, having worked in radio, you know, how they put it together. If you can make a show seem effortless, you know, that's the goal to make it seem like it's just a conversation. It's just a normal thing. And you and I both know that, you know, that requires a hell of a lot of work. (laughs) For me, it's typically about two hours of prep for every hour that I'm on the air. And I know for some people, it's a a whole lot more than that. I mean, if you actually read my whole book, you did a lot more than two hours of prep for this interview. And I really honor that. So, you know, the whole thing, I, I was fascinated by the medium. I knew the power of the medium, having been part of it in the 60s and 70s and having been a customer of it in the 80s and 90s. And I was just so frustrated that, you know, after Alan Berg was assassinated in the, in the late 70s, he was the number one talk show host in America. He was doing a progressive talk show out of, I think it was KOA, this big station in Denver that just blew a signal through 29 states. And he was assassinated in the parking lot by a couple of skinheads, or actually they were militia members. 
until he was assassinated. Most of the talk in America was progressive. Michael Jackson, the British guy in Los Angeles, had one of the longest lived talk shows in the country. I used to listen to him when I go to Los Angeles. The station in, in San Francisco, I, maybe that's KGO. I, I, I don't do well with call letters. <laughs> Still is a relatively progressive talk show or station. So I just thought it would be fun, basically. And then it kind of turned into this thing. It just got bigger and bigger. And, and now it owns me more than I own it. I think via your site, it reports that you have something like 7 million daily listeners or weekly. Weekly. And that's that, those numbers are nobody knows really for sure. Yeah, I know they extrapolate based on samples periodically. It's probably the number, the actual number is probably smaller than that. But there are a lot more stations carrying your program than are carrying Spirit in Action, Song of the Soul. I've got some 42 stations nationwide, community radio stations for the most part, that are carrying my show. That's great. It's a nice step, but you know, when I reach 100, I think I'll be uh, age of majority. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Well, let's talk some more about the hidden history of Big Brother in America, again, with Tom Hartman. It struck me kind of as a detour. You were talking about slavery and racism. I mean, it's an important age to talk about it. We had our interim session, it's called, for the Quakers here locally. And we have dedicated for a number of years now a certain portion of our program to consideration of racism and that. So I thought it was important to deal with racism. But in terms of Big Brother, is racism particularly important or is that just one facet of it? I mean, we know what happened with MLK, right? And the FBI. Yeah, and I mentioned that in the book. I think it's the key. And I made this argument in several chapters in my book on oligarchy that by 1830, the South was no longer a democracy. It was an oligarchy. The large plantations had taken over. But really starting in the 1600s, the mid-1600s, the South had become a police state. You could argue that it was a small-D democratic police state in, if you argued that you know, only white people being allowed to vote constitutes a democracy. But there was still a, a widespread franchise among white people. But the only way that they were able to maintain slavery was through terror and ultra big brother tactics. I can think of nothing more big brother, certainly in the history of this country, than the way that government conspired with private industry, in this case, plantation owners, to keep people enslaved. I mean, that's the ultimate big brother, isn't it, Mark? Certainly. The thing that I think it makes it seem so different is the mind control and the actual control of our actions that happens by Big Brother these days is done so infinitesimally, a, a touch here, a touch there. It, because they have all of this data, you know, the 3,000 or the 15,000 pieces of data that they have on each of us. Back in the South, they needed just one piece of data. How dark is your skin? So therefore, you can control the mind and actions. And you specifically mentioned, and this was, I thought, very important, Frederick Douglass in particular, when his learning to read, you talk about that in the book. The phrase I really liked, mental emancipation leads to social emancipation. I think there must be something in our society that's not working that way. People do not have mental emancipation in our society. Yeah, good point. Scary for me. Talk a little bit about Frederick Douglass, if you will. I think you mentioned him indirectly or a little bit about him. Anything more? Is he one of your role models, huh? Well, I think he's, you know, he's a hero of America. 
an, ex- an extraordinary man. And the, the story that I tell in, or that he tells in one of his three autobiographies or books that could be considered autobiographies was when he was a little child and the slave master's wife thought well of him and started teaching him to read and, and he got pretty good at it. And then one day the slave master came in or owner or whatever and realized that his wife was teaching young Frederick to read and, and said, you can't do that. If you let these people read, they will seize freedom, essentially. They will use that as a tool to escape the slavery that we're holding them in. And when Douglas overheard that conversation, he knew what he had to do. He had to learn how to read really well. And he became one of the great writers and orators of all time through America. And, and I think without his voice, we wouldn't have gone as far as we did and as well as we did. Although, you know, obviously we're nowhere close to where we should be. What lesson does that have for us today? As I said, I fear for our mental emancipation because we seem to be able to be shepherded in whichever direction Big Brother wants to take us. What are we missing here? We have universal education up through 12th grade. And, you know, I mean, theoretically, people should be educated and they should have their emancipation. Well, I think, you know, the lesson that Douglas taught us was that education leads to freedom. And I think that you've got a movement in the United States that believes that they can more easily manipulate people if they are not educated. I think it's one of the reasons why the Reagan administration and Bill Bennett, their education secretary, who, by the way, said that if you wanted to reduce crime in America, all you had to do is abort every black baby, which is mind boggling. And he continues to defend that quote. I don't know if I put it in the book or not. I, I, I should have. I don't think that was in the book. I mean, I did. Re- of course, I, everything you write, I memorize every word of. Okay, folks, that's an overstatement, but I did read the whole book. Here's my mea culpa moment. I did not read the footnotes, and I usually do. <laughs> there's there's a dozen pages of them. <laughs> I, I uh, heavily annotate my stuff, but I think that there are people who believe, and this is why they, you know, they didn't want us teaching civics in the 1980s, and now they don't want us teaching the genuine racial history of the United States. They don't want us teaching sex education, and they don't want any discussion of religion or comparative religion. You know, the fact that there might be something out there other than fundamentalist Christianity. And the reason why is because people are easier to control when they're ignorant, not stupid, but ignorant. And keeping people ignorant seems to be the perpetual North Star for autocrats, oligarchs, and frankly, you know, right-wingers. You do mention Edward Snowden in the book. I don't think you mentioned Julian Assange, which that was surprising to me because I thought he had something close to as much of an effect Uh, certainly commensurate with what Edward Snowden did. Yeah. But I think both of them are, that's about, we're going to have the knowledge, right? We're not going to be ignorant. No, Snowden did a lot. He revealed the rot inside our security systems. I have written about Snowden, and I thought I had written about Snowden in this book, but I did, I wrote the book long. I wrote it about, uh, these books are supposed to be 35,000 words, and I think I wrote it around 40,000. So I had to chop a bunch of stuff out. Julian Assange gets cut out. Okay. Maybe I I have to go back and look. Well, in both of them, though, I was wondering if you had a different perspective. I don't know that Julian Assange is a good person. As far as all I know, he's a true mental deviant, antisocial. I mean, I, I don't know the guy, right? Have you seen that movie about him that came out about eight, ten years ago? I didn't. I read a review about it. it was oh, I did. Mine helped make that movie. It's apparently he's he was very wounded by his childhood growing up in this bizarre cult where everybody bleached their hair blonde and had all these weird hygiene things that they had to do every day. And himself, you know, my sense of it was that he might be on the autistic spectrum. But, you know, I think his idea of WikiLeaks was kind of a cool idea. 
I also think that when he decided to essentially throw in with the Trump campaign, that he made a very bad calculation. Wow. Yeah. I wonder what it is that predisposes people to be willing victims, let's say, of mind control. I already made the comment about the kind of corporate big brother that I think that a lot of right-wing people tend to lean towards. person very informative for me and influential in my way of thinking is George Lakoff. Don't Think of an Elephant and other books. His bifurification of society into those who predominantly lean towards authoritarian father, ways of structure versus nurturing family. It seems to me that authoritarian father is much more susceptible to Big Brother. Mm -hmm. Those things go together. And that tends to be Republican-associated or right-wing-associated in our culture, which to some degree doesn't make sense because a lot of right-wing people are really not only anti-government. I mean, they're anti-anybody. Keep the foreigners out of my backyard, you know, kind of thing. So I think it's an unfortunate association, but top-down, particularly when you've got big data controlling your world and what you get to see that I think is fruitful on the negative side for how our minds get controlled. Anyway, George Lakoff, evidently you followed his stuff well enough. Yeah. He's been on the show a couple of times too. I've read his work. Good guy. He is very insightful. One of the things that you point out, I mean, you talk about how big brother functions and it can function at a fairly local level. You talked about Massachusetts and how they did it. The Puritans did it back in the day. So it can be happen at a, what we'd call a city or a state or a national level. A point you make is that when people think they're being watched, their behaviors are modified. It's called social cooling. Social cooling. I observe that as people move from a small town where they're more easily known, identified, oh yeah, you're that person's kid, that social cooling happens. Move to a big city anonymous group of 3 million, 7 million people, it's much easier not to be socially cooled. Now, those are also areas that tend to lean liberal, I think, in our society. But what's that got to do with Big Brother? Big cities mean lack of Big Brother? I don't know. They've got cameras, too, and facial recognition. They all know us that way, too. But you see what I'm saying, though? I think it's something you don't mention in the book. I think it's an imperfect analogy. You know, when I was writing the book and I was doing the research on this topic, I didn't see anything that specifically said that the density of population around you was a principal determinant of how willing or unwilling you were to reveal yourself, essentially. I think the liberal or conservative perspectives or worldviews probably derive from something other than that. And the main thing, and this is just a guess on my part, because I'm no authority in this area, but my guess would be that it has to do with interdependence. Uh, the sense of interdependence that, you know, it's possible if you live in a very rural area to grow your own food and generate your own power and be independent of anybody, that being one end of the spectrum. And if you live in a city, you're completely dependent upon everybody for everything. You can't grow your own food. You can't get dispose of your own waste. You can't, et cetera, et cetera. And so that sense of dependence or interdependence rather, I think is probably at the foundation of modern progressive thought. And that sense of independence of, you know, I can do it myself. I don't need any help. Thank you very much. is probably at the core of modern conservative thought. So if rural urban has anything to do with that split, my guess is that's where it is. But I think it's also in the modern day over the last 20 years, keeping in mind just 30 years ago, many of your, what are now red states, many of your rural areas were fiercely democratic, fiercely blue. I think a lot of it has to do with the building out of over 1,500 right-wing radio stations in pretty much every small town in America. 
just the constant barragement of people with right-wing propaganda for decades. By the way, folks, we are speaking with Tom Hartman. His most current book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threatens Us and Our Democracy. I'm very sensitive to the idea that our democracy is very near the tipping point of being lost. This past election gone just slightly differently. I think we could have kissed democracy in the U.S. goodbye. But I wanted to touch on a few more things, Tom. You bring out such wonderful examples of how big data, and this is corporate, and it's somewhat in, sometimes they're in league with government and a lot of times not, but you give some wonderful examples of how that access to big data can control every aspect of our lives. One of the things you mentioned is customer service. You call them up and they know whether or not to answer the phone or to keep you on hold or route you through 20 different delays and then cut you off based on their picture of how troublesome you are. Or how profitable you may be. Or profitable. Yes. That's the other thing. If someone's going to get on and they're going to order something new, well, then of course we'll channel them. But if you're recognized as being problematic, which they can do from your phone number and Right now, those infinite data points that they seem to have recognizing us. I mean, we all have had the experience, probably, if we're on Facebook, of having done some kind of search on Google about something, and all of a sudden, an ad for it or the phone number of the website pops up in Facebook as you go through it for that same kind of product. Give some other examples of that maybe that people don't recognize that big data is controlling and shaping our mindset and world. Well, it it certainly is. I mean, one of the examples I have in the book, or at least I I wrote in the first draft of the book, was the story of my wife. You know, about a decade ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. We were working and doing my show in DC at the time and doing a TV show in the evening. And so in the evening, when we go in and work on the TV show, she was working on shared computers, you know, with other people, whatever computer she went to, starting like the day after her doctor told her she had breast cancer whatever computer she was on was throwing ads at her for wigs, you know, post chemotherapy for prosthetic breasts for weird breast cancer cures. I mean, it was like the internet knew that she had breast cancer and she had just talked to her doctor and sent an email to a few family members. And and I'm guessing she probably Googled, you know, a few things like, you know, herbs for cancer or something, therapies or whatever. She was trying to make the decision between surgery and chemo and radiation as happens when people get cancer. But it was so embarrassing for her because she would go into work and she would log in to her email account or something that would identify her to that computer or to the internet as, oh, Louise Hartman's on here now. And suddenly every ad on every page would be one of these cancer things. Most of them were wigs. There were a lot of wigs. One of the people who worked with her made a joke about, oh, you thinking about wearing a wig, huh? (laughs) Maybe they're just looking at me and saying, well, toupee, I think they call it in my case. (laughs) But. But, uh, it shouldn't be. I mean, you shouldn't. They shouldn't be able to track you across the internet. It's it's wrong. A lot of people would say that this use of computers, the ability to go into any computer and analyze anything, there are some. Some people would conceive them as positive outcomes of them. The Stuxnet virus, the Iranian nuclear program, was the centrifuges were undermined horribly by the way they were able to infiltrate that. But then it it bounces back in our country. And okay, so now you've got a power plant here or a dam or anything. Mention a few of those things, because I don't think people really get even 1% of how much this can control our lives. 
for virtually all of our infrastructure from the macro to the micro, from you know big power plants and dams down to the refrigerator in your home or your thermostat for your heating system are online. Your refrigerator may not be, some of the new ones are, but a lot of people have thermostats that are. And being online, they're vulnerable to sabotage. And this is what uh, back in 2014, the Ukrainians experienced, you know, might've been before 2014, you know, when the Russians basically took down the country. I mean, just turned computers into bricks, wiped out the banks, prevented people from getting gasoline. There were apparently North Koreans and Iranians who were trying to get into U.S. critical infrastructure. There was a dam here in Oregon that they tried to sabotage the dam using software. And had they succeeded in opening that dam, it would have flooded a downriver town and probably killed several thousand people. You know, explicit act of terror. The good news is that they there was a similar dam with the same name in New York State that's on a little tiny creek that would not have flooded anybody. And that was the one that they attacked. They weren't that familiar with American geography. But I believe, and there's a chapter about this in the book, that the next war is not going to be a nuclear war. It's going to be a cyber war. They're going to come after us at that level because so much of our infrastructure now is dependent on the internet or connected to the internet. And when Obama put into place regulations and requirements for corporations to harden their infrastructure, Trump came in and got rid of all that stuff. And why? 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 I mean, what insanity... I think because he he's he doesn't like America. I think he, Trump hates America. I think he's very resentful of America. He was never accepted in America. He's always been viewed as an outsider. And, and I think that his love of foreign oligarchs and dictators is a dimension of that. I really do. You know, I think his niece, Mary Trump, is right that he delights in destroying things, including families and including his own country. There's a lot we could talk about, Tom, but I think it's really important to include just one last little piece. There have been attempts. You you just mentioned President Obama's attempt to have corporations, have our country harden its defense against cyber attack on our country. What are the other laws that you find hopeful or promising? And there's some that are being proposed right now, haven't gone through. Some of them are being prevented by exactly the people who are going to bellyache really loudly when they, when the effect of lack of these laws goes through. But what would you feel particularly hopeful or eager to have in place? I think the big one is uh, Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. This was designed to jumpstart the internet. I was running forums on CompuServe throughout the 80s into the late 90s. We had close to 20 of them. We ran the IBM PC forum and the Macintosh forum and the ADD forum and the UFO forum and the International Trade Forum. At that point in time, you had to disclose your identity when you went online if you wanted to post anything. And all the posts were reviewed by our sysops. I had like 30 people working for me. CompuServe was paying me and I was sharing that money with all these people who were working for me. In fact, it was a pretty good little gig. But the reason why was because if somebody did something or said something illegal, somebody was pushing child porn or if somebody was trying to recruit terrorists or somebody was trying to hire somebody to kill their spouse or you know, buy drugs or something, I could be held responsible or CompuServe could be held responsible. And they tried to delegate that responsibility to me. Section 230 said no more responsibility. So, Mark, if you were to invite, you know, a couple of dozen people over to your house and everybody gets high and in one corner of the living room is a fist fight and one person strangles and kills another person and in another corner of the room, somebody's raping somebody. And in the, another corner of the room, there's, there's somebody who's set up a, a shooting gallery and they're dealing heroin and people are getting high and the police walked in, you would be the guy going to jail because it was your house. 
and you invited them in and you allowed this to happen with knowledge of it. That's what's going on right now on social media. But they have an absolute insulation because of Section 230. That's, in my opinion, the biggest problem that we have right now in the United States. Well, maybe that piece can be moved. There's a whole number of things that you mentioned, Tom, in the book. What are your favorites, Mark? I don't think we have time to go into them all, but you're one of my favorites. I think if we had you running just as you were doing back in the 1980s, if you were running Facebook, maybe we would have more sane world. But then, of course, you know, people just as Donald Trump has gone, go to another social media setup. He's up to 328 members. Well, okay, he's going wild. (laughs) He's going wild. (laughs) His social media empire crashed, but it got 328 members before it crashed. One thing I want to make sure that is clear is Big Brother, the techniques, the mind control can be used for good or for bad. And it all depends what the motivation behind it is. For businesses, they're out to get a buck. And maybe it's about stoking the ego of this person in big business or in government. And, you know, Donald Trump wants to stay in office. And so let's control the media to make that happen. But this kind of knowledge can also be used for good. I was just thinking, it's something I don't think you mentioned in the book, contact tracing for COVID. I haven't set my phone up to do that, but I realize that talk about intrusive big brother Everyone I come near gets reported, right? You know, it's problematic that way. It's something that I could easily be afraid of, and a lot of conservative people are. We don't want government intruding in our business. But on the other hand, wow, we can track where COVID was, is, and you're in danger, and so be careful. Your health can have a positive outcome. What's interesting in that regard is that, you know, they introduced that in Hong Kong a year and a half ago and required people to get contact tracing software on their cell phones. And now they're using it to track that exact same software to track down dissidents. Yes. So it all depends upon the motives that are driving you. Tools tend to be values neutral. Well, folks, we've been talking with Tom Hartman today. Latest book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threatens Us and Our Democracy. I don't know, 32, 33 books. I'm not sure what you've done, Tom, but it's extremely important tomes of knowledge that I think people would be better off if they would read. I'm all about world healing, whatever we can get us there. And I find that both your daily broadcasts, the information that you shared through your books, and other ways, articles. And I'm going to free you up to go do your next article that you've got to write now. But I really think it's so wonderful that you do your work. If only we could clone you, it would be a valuable thing for this country. Keep doing what you're doing, Mark. You're part of the movement that I'm part of. Let's work together and make this place a better country. I have links to Tom, Tom Hartman Show, and other things on northernspiritradio.org. Follow those and join us again for Spirit in Action. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh